Hello and welcome to Dinesh Guarda's Cities ABC series. We are a fast-growing YouTube podcast thought leadership channel focused on profiling the global leading inspiring people, CEOs, authors, technologists and academics. We align the ideas, products, inventions, software, books and solutions to the multiple challenges, opportunities we face in our cities, nations, uh, with the advent of the so-called Society 5.0, all the areas of fourth industrial revolution, digital transformation, blockchain, fintech, IoT, and all the emerging technologies. Our Dinis Guarda Cities ABC YouTube podcast series are distributed on citiesabc.com, that is the platform Wiki4AR intelligent smart cities platform we created for cities and for us citizens, um, as well the openbusinesscouncil.org, that is our business wiki directory and as well on our website intelligenthq.com a thought leadership platform and then of course is distributed spotify apple podcasts google podcasts soundcloud and a lot of other platforms that we are uh, working worldwide Gujan is a, he has a uh, dr Gujan, if i go for his phd degree uh, he has a fantastic uh, um, bio and uh, profile so he is the CEO and founder of Inoplexus AG, a German-based company, um, and the group that has been uh, working in a lot of areas of strategy, analytics, and technology, and he works with different uh, clients and uh, partners around the world. Uh, Gunten as well is a former Bolton Consulting Group, and before that he's been working in the think tank of Ernest & Young, and has been a manager in the German practice with a solution focus on strategy and innovation. Um, I want to highlight as well that uh, uh, Gunjan is, is uh, Indian-German based, as well we'll talk about the culture, but as well he has a PhD and has been focused in his efforts on managing all the areas of exploratory and explanation innovation, which is key, and as well has been looking at the issues of security and data sharing at the European Union. Um, and the Inoplexus, uh, the organization, is taking uh, a lot of work in terms of looking at life science data and as well aligning with GDPR, which is key and more important than ever. Um, so as well, uh, it has a huge background academic from MIT to IIT uh, Bombay, European Business School of Frankfurt. Um, he has as well a huge uh, amount of patents and applications to his name and has been published in most of the mainstream management and scientific journals like Harvard Business Review and Journals of Service Research and Forbes and so forth. So I want to welcome to our series. It's a pleasure to have you here and I'm looking forward to talk with you. Thank you. Looking forward as well. It's a pleasure. So I want to start with your origins. And I think it's particularly important, especially in a world that is more global than ever, but as well more intertwined in terms of a lot of uh, complexities of geopolitics and sometimes geostupidities. But I think we have fantastic things happening as well. So I think especially you come from India, you are in German, so two completely different cultures. But as well, it's, it's wonderful that you managed to put these two cultures together. And as well, then you have the scientific, academic parts and more uh, rational of German. So I would like to talk about your background. How did you end up in German? And as well, in a very high-profile academic and, and a, a business academic in, in German, and as well, being part of the German society right now. Thank you. There is a joke uh, that runs like this. There is a meteor 
which is going to hit the planet Earth, and you have to shoot a rocket to destroy that. And there is a button that needs to be pressed. And there is an American, a German, and an Indian. American is concerned about pressing the damn button, output-oriented. German says, no, no, no. It doesn't suffice that you just press the button. What is more important is how you press the button, process orientation. And the Indian says, I don't care whether you press the button or how you press the button. For me, what is the most important is who presses the button, people orientation. I come from India. I grew up in probably uh, uh, the largest nuclear field in Asia uh, in a township uh, where my dad worked in the Department of Atomic Energy and all my friends loved math, physics. We had a fantastic time growing up. And then I landed up at uh, Indian Institute of Technology, Bombay, um, after this grueling joint entrance exam and had the best uh, intelligence pool probably that India has to offer in, uh, in that campus. The first startup that I set up or started was a startup that produced bean bags and sold it in South Mumbai. And it didn't matter how, uh, what your academic background was, how smart you were, what mattered was whether you were able to sell your bean bag uh, to a person that was totally oblivious to your personal background, but was just interested in what value he or she can, be, uh, can get from that beanbag. Through that, I landed up over a long detour in Germany with a scholarship, wherein I did my master's, then went to Ernst & Young directly, did my PhD, meanwhile went to Boston Consulting Group. And when I first came here, our global leader for advisory told me, I have everything great, but probably I've chosen a wrong country because I didn't speak a word of German. And their understanding of Germany, or for many, is that it's a relatively conservative country. Thankfully, uh, all of them were proven wrong because I got the best mentors, friends, and bosses uh, who taught me a lot during this, this time. And I think the same, I believe if you could combine the German precision with the Indian energy uh, and dynamism, you have the best combination. That's what we are trying to do. Of course, also with two offices in the United States, also using the drive, the ambition, the, the vision uh, that the US American culture also provides in, uh, into the mix. Wonderful and very inspiring as well. And I think that's what I love uh, about, uh, well, about you and about uh, people like you that are really citizens of multiple worlds. And I think this is more important than ever. So I want to touch a bit on that before we go to your fantastic profile and as well uh, career. So um, you, just as you said, you had a fantastic in, input and as well support for mentors when you start studying in German. But I know that it's not difficult being uh, very... Uh, European myself and as well being work a lot with German it's quite actually astonishing what you achieved especially not being born and not even just coming 
um, from a late stage to, to the country. So can you tell us a bit about, because I think it's very important to look at these layers. And I think one of the things I always like to tell to all my friends and people that are part of my teams and as well that listen to me is that the best way to learn is to listen, to understand the, the nuances. And the devil is always on the details, but especially in the narratives that we see and the stories that we look around this. And I think, of course, if you are in a box and you just see that box, you only see the box. But if you get out of the box, you can see much more. So I would like to hear this experience and, and as well some of probably some of the anecdotes, but as well uh, um, what came out of that that made who you are right now. Some big power up there, God Almighty, uh, he or she gifted us two ears and one mouth. So if you listen twice, uh, as what you speak, there is a lot one can learn. So it's all about curiosity and the, um, uh, and the hunger to learn. Um, when I went to IIT, it's a very, very competitive environment. Uh, in India, I think um, in the year I got into IIT, there were like 300,000 school-going uh, children who wrote this entrance exam and around 4,000 got in. Uh, so it's, it was really competitive. Even the curriculum in IIT was extremely competitive. But you were, uh, and we did a lot of things. We, we, we did dramatics. We started companies, uh, audited courses and departments that had nothing to do with us. I did uh, psychology, economics, even though I was uh, I was doing metallurgy and material science, uh, metallurgical engineering and material science. So it, it really rounded up uh, the perspective. And we saw many successful entrepreneurs coming out and that inspired us all. And we always jokingly said in our dorm, if tomorrow somebody asks us to send a rocket to the moon, we would be able to do that. That is the kind of confidence that institution provides. And then coming to Germany, uh, it was, it was uh, very open, but slightly relaxed compared to the IIT campus. Um, but there were other elements wherein the education system puts a lot of value at creativity and uh, looking at uh, being innovative, combining various faculties together. That kind of a relaxed uh, outlook towards creativity and, uh, and ambition to create things which have amazing quality. So this uh, passion towards quality is something I learned here in Germany. And I can tell you, uh, just by looking at a PowerPoint presentation, I can tell if there is, you know, it sounds very, uh, very, very fishy, but I could say if there was a German eye looking at that presentation or not, because even one pixel of formatting error, your eyes catch it. That's the level of precision, uh, you know, people here aspire. So that dynamism, that energy, that hunger, that curiosity to learn, uh, working 24 by seven, trying to read as much as possible, talking to people who have a lot to tell, uh, a lot of knowledge, to impart um, in Germany was, was basically the key. And I met a partner at ENY in that school uh, who basically said, uh, what do you want? And I answered to him, I want to do something cool. 
And uh, that partner at ENY was a taxation partner. He still is, Professor Michael Schaden in the German, uh, in the Stuttgart office of uh, ENY. And he said, well, you don't speak German. You haven't done anything in accounting and taxation. So I have something cool, an internship in the tax advisory department. Uh, nobody was allowed to speak in English to me. Everybody answered in German. That's how I learned my German. Whatever I speak, I never went to a language school. And that was the start. So being open about taking challenges. And if you are curious and you work hard, I think any part of the world you get support, mentors and guidance. Sometimes we, well, especially if you look at the news, you get depressed. All these cultural uh, differences and as well the expertise that comes from Germany, India, uh, Europe, uh, Asia. We, did, we take for granted sometimes things, but that is these things that make the wealth. So I want to start with your career. So you have a fantastic career and, um, and a lot of highlights from... Uh, it's quite interesting and I think it's very German on that level, probably different from India that you have a, a, a fantastic bridge between the academic world um, and as well the research and scientific and then the business world, which normally the two things don't mix. I know that German is probably an exception that most of the CEOs have a, a degree or a master or MBA or a PhD. Um, but around the world, I would say that most of the CEOs have no degree and they are just entrepreneurs. So I would like to hear a bit about that because, of course, being a CEO of a um, high-profile company and as well working with some of the biggest uh, academic institutions in the world and as well publications is not a small task. But I would like to hear how do you mix these two worlds and then, of course, a bit about your career probably afterwards. Sure. So uh, when you work uh, in business, earlier I was in consulting there is a lot that's run off the mill. So you, of course, have, and you know, uh, you, you can't ideate all the time. It's more about execution. You, know? you have to ex excel at execution. Uh, fortunately, at Inoplexus, we uh, are thinking about solving some of the most wicked problems we call day in and day out, be it uh, a batch normalization problem, hashing a graph, looking at new technologies, applying it into a rather traditional and slightly more conservative industry, which is uh, the pharmaceutical or life science industry. I am um, fortunate that way, but still, if you have one of your uh, feet in academia, you get to know what is cutting edge, what is being thought about, what has worked, um, and then you always get inspired and can see what of these ideas I can implement in the work that I'm doing. Because business is mostly downstream. As I mentioned, uh, it's more about execution. Uh, you can't uh, ideate all the time. And Khalil Zibran said, God rests in reason and moves in passion. So you, you rest, you ideate with reasoning, but then it's all about passionate execution. But in academia, it's the other way around. You, uh, it's, it's driven by what are the gaps in science that you want to address. It, uh, it helps motivate you to remain curious. And I think that's a wonderful thing. And many people say, uh, you know, good leaders are great readers, for instance. Uh, so unless one keeps 
some exposure to academic research and what's cutting edge there, I think the growth probably is not the same as, as you would like to be. I would like to remain curious till my very last day. And I think uh, being having a foot in, in academia is a part of it. Oh, wonderful. And I make your words mine as well. This is actually exactly my norm. So I think we have a lot in common on that. And I think we need more of that. We need that curiosity and we need to make sure that people continue having creativity. So I want to go right now to how did you create your company? And David has got some highlights in your career, probably from your academic research to creating the company and as well working uh, with the likes of very high profile companies that you have from, uh, um, uh, from well, working with the likes all the areas of uh, uh, consultancy, big, the big consultancy organizations that uh, we're talking about, uh, Ernest and Young and so forth. So consulting is one of the best learning grounds. Uh, I believe you get to see so much in such a short span in time. And ENY was amazing. Uh, so was Boston Consulting Group. At ENY, uh, when I joined, we were building our performance. Uh, the firm was building its performance improvement practice, which is now a full-fledged management consulting uh, practice. And I, I was doing already a lot of work in marketing and pricing uh, in terms of research, looking at, uh, you know, uh, atomization models, segmentation models, channel mix, omni-channel strategies, and so on and digital was just picking up. So it was one of the most intellectually fascinating times, looking at various companies adopting uh, some of the new customer operating models, pricing strategies, uh, channel mix optimization approaches, because digital was, was starting to take off. And then uh, I got to work with some of the most amazing leaders in consulting within ENY, including our then chairman, uh, Mr. Jim Turley, who was, a, who was and is an amazing, one of the most amazing mentors one could have. Um, and then at Boston Consulting Group, um, I was fortunate to get a chance to be inspired by uh, Mr. Martin Reeves, uh, who uh, heads the Bruce Henderson Institute for BCG now, uh, with some of the most path-breaking ideas, like the entire concept of ontologies that we leverage heavily to understand the context, the language of drug discovery and development at Anoplexis, uh, that actually came about uh, in my first conversations with Martin in New York. Uh, very path-breaking, disruptive, counterfactual ideas as Jean-Pierre Dupieux talks about counterfactual rationality. So can you think of completely different paths to a future state instead of being very inductive and deductive in your approach? And uh, all of these learnings and consulting are tested also on the academic side. We did some fantastic work on extreme customers uh, together with my friend at Imperial uh, 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 Professor Andreas Eisengerich was one of the superstars in marketing. Uh, instead of just looking at the Bayesian segments, clusters of, of customers, can you also look at outliers and learn from them? 
I spent some time at the Plexus Institute, which is the Santa Fe of healthcare, where uh, uh, fo uh, folks such as Henry Lipmavovich, who is, who is amazing, uh, uh, very creative uh, genius that has come out with this concept of liberating structures, uh, John Holland, Stuart Kaufman, they all looked at using ideas from complexity science to solve problems in healthcare, such as MRSA prevention, but not looking at just Bayesian models, but looking at uh, outliers, as I mentioned, looking at pos positive deviance and seeing what can be learned from there. So you, you see a plethora of cases, different industries embracing something that was just ramping up, was new, and at the same time, uh, in these think tanks and in academia, also looking at the cutting edge research that was happening in marketing, for instance, regarding extreme customers, uh, looking at complexity science ideas that could be implemented to, uh, uh, to healthcare in real life cases. Uh, I, I saw a lot uh, of interesting stuff in a very limited period in time. And that's, that's inspiring, that's amazing. Because every day you have an idea, you see, wow, and what, uh, and not just the merit of that idea, but also a practical application that creates value in the real world. Before going to uh, your company, and I want to ask you a lot of things about Inoplexus, but just one more. So you've been actually doing a lot of research and a lot of papers and leading academic journals and as well a lot of patents. Um, so can you tell us a bit about that? Because it's quite unique as an entrepreneur as well, building patents yourself and having this academic work. So all of uh, the work that Inoplexus does belongs to the team. We have one of the most kick-ass teams in AI and technology globally. And all of us are inspired and driven. Uh, we all want to create an impact uh, for the mankind. That's what drives us. That's why I jump out of my bed after sleeping three to four hours and want to be in office every day. Uh, unless there is a lockdown. Uh, um, and, you know, we have been solving a huge problem. Um, and the problem that we had at hand was the medical knowledge is exploding at an extremely, extremely high pace. The doubling time of medical knowledge is around 73 days, according to a study. So every year, you have a 32 times explosion of data. And it's also not just the volumes, but the order of complexity. So with such a mammoth uh, exploding mountains of data with a lot of complexity, how do you make sense of all of this data to answer questions that patients, investors, pharmaceutical companies and regulator are, regulators are waiting waiting for. I sometimes say medicine is like religion in 18th century. Only the priests spoke the language of the gods and the illiterate, uneducated folk was relying completely on those priests. The priests of medicine, one could say, could be physicians and these pharmas and biotech companies. And the, the folk that, that, that basically depends on these priests are investors 
patients and regulators because there is just no way to understand the context of what all of this exploding data entails and in order to create a semantic engine a machine an ai that understands this context we had to solve many wicked problems we had to create an engine that could discover urls that have life science data we had to create an engine that could crawl and mass all of this data extract uh, structured information from pdfs htmls images we had to create a graph which would dynamically uh, build itself out and would be in a position to provide a frame of reference to any data that comes to it mammoth problems so in order to create a vertical extraction architecture for this industry we had to solve all these different problems the other problem was how do you access proprietary data and many in europe were crying foul saying you know the bus has of ai has left the station we have gdpr it's a disaster we can't create data pools but why should you create data pools why should you rob people's ip away why should patients who produce the data should not be incentivized for the data they create scientists study centers why shouldn't they get anything for the data that they create why shouldn't they own their own data and there we brought in blockchain and created a combination of ai and blockchain and artificial general intelligence for drug discovery and development and in all these problems uh, we did a lot of reading of what is state of the art what is the thinking you know in blockchain you have uh, in chain scaling scaling off chain scaling how can we create a scale today we are looking at this much data will be 32x data by the end of this year and that's where uh, i said uh, together with my team you know it's it's amazing you know every day you have an amazing problem to solve and with this amazing team we we got onto it and that resulted as a byproduct i mean the main thing is the platform we have built and the amazing work we are doing with the largest biotech pharma cro's and also for patients with our patient app curia but the an amazing byproduct is also the ip that we have created so that explains and oh, that is really very inspiring and i think really I think the critical element, and I'll go after that. I think we will be a long interview, but I think it's worth. I think so. I'm right now going to to Inoplexus, um, and uh, the different things you have. So you have uh, all the areas of life science, artificial intelligence. Um, you have the uh, ontocyte um, uh, product, and then of course you have all the areas of technology and a lot of different things. So, um, so. How do you define Inoplexus and why did you create the company? And a bit of a uh, just tell us a bit about the company in itself. We are a virtual drug discovery and development platform. The future of pharma and biotech is there won't be a biotech being created in a building. Uh, future biotechs would be digital biotechs, wherein. you would have access to a lot of data 
And once you have tested and validated hypothesis, these hypotheses would go in a wet lab uh, and then onto clinical development. And that's exactly what we are trying to create. We have created an AI at scale, a platform that covers the entire relevant published universe of life sciences and proprietary universe. We are able to structure all this information and bring it together in a context. And once you have built a, such a platform that's able to contextualize all the information that's thrown, you can then take this in-context information and do predictive analysis to solve the most pressing questions for drug discovery and development. So that's exactly, that's exactly what we do. The base platform is called Ontosite and that's built off AI and blockchain, but we leverage a lot of different AI approaches on top of this platform, as I said, to answer the most pressing questions for the industry. It's a multi-sided platform. So of course, uh, we are working with a number of biotechs participating in the risk, in the assets that they are creating, drug assets, therapy assets. But at the same time, we are also working with funds that invest in listed life science companies, uh, getting intelligence from our platform. We are also working with patient advocacy groups and patients, providing them, them access to an app that we call Curia. It's for cancer patients. That, uh, that does two things. It answers questions related to alternative therapies, right clinical trials, real experts for my specific kind of disease. And second, a recommendation engine that provides you cancer twins. So unlike you know, uh, patient forums wherein you go online and you tell everybody what disease you have, and then others would come with their empathy and would share their experiences, the machine tells which other patient is closest to you with respect to disease characteristics. But all the communication with that patient and the degree of anonymity is controlled by you and him using a private key because all of this happens on a, on a blockchain. So it's the same platform that focuses on a virtual drug discovery and development paradigm that we are creating. But we also use the, the base platform to create value for investors to see which companies are going to be successful, which companies are not going to be successful, and patients who get answers to most fundamental questions. They want answers for when they are told they have cancer. Yeah, this so this area is is the most uh, cutting edge area of humanity, and I think if you go to Yuval Noah Harari, one of the things is highlighting a lot in his books, which I kind of highlighted. I say I've been highlighting my previous book, the Four um, AR Blockchain AI FinTech and IoT, is that as we let's say if you look at the and I'm going right now to a more conceptual intellectual part, but I think it's important to look at what you're doing. So let's say. As we're looking at these topics, like you say, you have the data, but we're as well doing human engineering and doing a lot of things. Um, and of course, this is a bit of a chaos right now because in one end, we have, let's say, the work that you're doing in German, which is very data 
conscious. And then we have the work being done in Russia, very nearby where you are. We have the work being done in the US, which is as well, even each state has its own regulatory frame. So this is becoming to be very complex, uh, especially because the data flows, as long as you're using Facebook or UAC, uh, Apple or Facebook or whatever, um, this is becoming the most complex because in one end there's the data, in one end there's the research that scientists and companies like yours are doing, and the other end we have all the, the bios around data and the, all the challenges that come out of this. So being in German, being Indian as well, you probably are thinking and trying to make the bridges, but this is a big thing. And I think especially with healthcare and biosciences, I don't know, I wanna, my question probably, and I'm trying to go uh, around different areas, is how we cope with the ethics and all the areas of GDPR that are coming out of this work, point one. And second, with the concrete solutions that you're building with these companies, investment funds, and as well pharma companies that are building the software, the products, because for us, we are in a, among COVID-19, and let's be honest, nothing came out of this. And we have all this scientific, amazing research, but we are because, and the reason is not because of the science, it's ironic, it's because of the geopolitics. So my question is, how do you deal with all this ethic complexity and data complexity and as well geopolitics? That's a very interesting question. And there, there is a fundamental, fundamental thought that all need to embrace. And even when Europe has embraced GDPR and in terms of protecting the rights of citizens with respect to data and more so privacy, not just data, they're a step ahead of other jurisdictions. There is this fundamental value that's missing even in the debate around data protection or privacy in Europe. And that value is every citizen should have a fundamental right towards the data that he or she produces. Data belongs to the individual who produces this data. It cannot belong to a study center. It cannot belong to a government. It cannot belong to any third party. And if you could enable, construct a platform, a technology that could ensure this fundamental right, then everything else is possible. But we saw even with GDPR, it was a regulation that came in top down. But you know, this fundamental right is still not protected. You see in certain jurisdictions, people get away with uh, disease data of patients because patients don't own that data. It's being annotated and sold for billions to big farmers. Why? Why should a scientist not care about his or her IP? Why should he or she just give away his or her data? In, in order to address that, we believe one of the biggest transformational technologies of our times is blockchain. Unfortunately, blockchain technology has been kind of tarnished because you know the name, the reputation in you know some years back because it's being always used in conjunction with cryptocurrencies. You know, it's uh, the fundamental blockchain technology uh, has the capability. Is the only technology which has the capability to create a fundamentally trustless system.
wherein you don't have to rely on a government, on a custodian, on some central orchestrator. You can create a system wherein which is rule-based and everybody can very securely own his or her own data. And that's exactly what we are trying to build. Now, once you have built that, you need a capability. The second ingredient is you need a capability which enables you to semantically understand the context of a specific domain. If you are looking at life sciences, EGFR could mean a number of things. It could be a protein, a gene, a target, a biomarker, filtration rate of kidneys. What are we talking about when we say EGFR? You, you need not just structure the data, you need the semantic layer. And like any language, in order to create this layer, you need scale. So you need a platform that's scalable which not just structures all of this data, but provides a semantic frame of reference for a specific domain. And the third aspect is related to data and regulations that you mentioned. And there, one should not look at data as a whole. What we, what we are in our society or in societies and, or in the discourse always talking about when we talk of AI is you need data to train AI, right? And, and data is treated as a lump sum, as a spray and pray approach. If I want to train an AI model for pancreatic cancer, I don't need cough and cold data. You need a high degree of specificity. But if you have provided those building blocks of data owned by citizens and have provided a frame of reference I can search who owns the, the data that's relevant to train my pancreatic cancer AI model. And then you can either get the data itself if regulations allow and if the owners of those data sets allow, which you know, goes contrary to certain regulations, because even if the owner of the data would allow certain regulations would bar you to move the data. And in that case, you can use technology to bridge that gap, such as federated learning. Instead of licensing the data, you can license potentially the gradients, the intelligence in that data to train your models. So uh, summarizing, there are three levels at which you could address this challenge. One is fundamental right of citizens to have complete control over their data and a technology that could enable that, that's blockchain. Second, a scalable AI with a semantic frame of reference for a specific domain. And three, technology tools that could enable training AI models at scale without moving data across jurisdictions, such as federated learning. One challenge is that, so I think people like us, and, and I think a lot of the people probably listening to us, they kind of agree with you and me. Uh, but then we have right now a lot of layers. First of all, there's the rest of society that is struggling to understand all this complexity. So the general society doesn't understand the importance of science. If you look Brexit, um, a lot of things, even what has been happening in France and what is happening in the United States, 
Um, so we have, let's say, in the Western world with the liberal values that we have, we have a kind of a tolerance towards data, but then we have a chaos that, uh, for instance, especially in the last couple of years, we've been having a kind of a, a, a turning of uh, making the scientists not important, which is, of course, uh, a very risky part because that's what made the advances of society um, in the last, well, 30,000 years of human species as sapiens was precisely the advances of science, especially a neutral and independent science that respects the values that you just mentioned. But the complexity, and I think the devil is always on details, is how do we go through this? And we can actually teach most of the different countries around the world where if you look at, uh, let's say, if you look at the world population close to 8 billion as we speak, and the beginning of the 20th century, just 100 years ago, was 1 billion. So we multiply by 8. And uh, as well, before that, was not even close to these numbers. So we have right now, in the space of 150 years, more development than all the 30,000 years of history of humankind as, as sapiens species, species, or at least variation. But we are right now going to start um, with work of people like us, and especially like you. We're going to start bioengineering humans to go to 200 years or at least to create new areas with data. Because if, let's say, if you, if you look at the data, you can actually cure most of the things. But how do you look at this? And I've, I'm particularly interested in, and not from a geopolitical, on the political side, but from a geopolitical, on the scientific side. Because I know that German is very smart, uh, at least the, the policymakers policy in German have been very smart in looking at protection of data. As most of the GDPR came out of Germany and Europe, Europe pushed it forward. I remember that German had the much, much, it's still the country, the world with more attention towards data. But then we have, let's say, the United States has been kind of erading and disappearing all of that, at least in the last couple of years. Then we have China that has been, for instance, right now, going ahead 10 years towards the rest of humanity in terms of uh, technology and even scientific innovation. Most of the patents are right now moving to China. And China is not a completely conventional liberal economy, as we know. But as well, AI at the same time is moving very, very fast because it doesn't stop. <laughs> so that, that means all the work in social media that you can start mining, all the insights that you can take are astonishing to say less. And as well, we are already creating... Um, algorithms that can see the sexuality of a person even before the person understands their sexuality. And, uh, and we can actually look at uh, the political values and then retargeting things. I, I just want to understand these layers because I think it's particularly interesting, especially with your scientific hats and as well academic, but as well researcher. AI has to serve mankind. And, and so we need to put limits to AI um, and design systems in a way that kind of give us enough controls to protect ourselves, not going berserk in directions that we wish uh, not to go. At the same time, you know, if, if AI is very, you know, AI is very practice oriented, it's very application oriented. There is a lot of basic research being, uh, taking place, but there is a big gap between you know, what's being done from a basic research perspective in AI and the applications thereof. And if you focus on real applications where, where human beings see value firsthand, uh, this example of Curia is a very simple example. A patient who is told he has cancer wants to know what are the alternatives for me? 
uh, is there a study taking place where I could participate? Is there hope? And who is the real expert for my specific kind of disease? All oncologists cannot be experts in all 500 plus cancer types. So there must be a specialist. Can AI give me answers to these three questions? The answer is yes. Very simple problem. A very profound impact. If you solve this problem, create value, I think it as a solution, this AI will be embraced by a patient in any country. But you are right. We also have a duty towards raising awareness because discourse in some countries, as you pointed out, is more about finding limitations and problems and challenges that AI could bring rather than investing in the possibilities that AI promises. And in some countries, it's completely the other way around. We need a balance. And balance could start with identifying problems that really move the cheese because that's where people see real value and it, it creates kind of positivity. So we are doing our job uh, in different societies, talking about AI, talking to patient advocacy groups, investors, pharmaceutical companies, and showing the value. Another thing that's extremely important and that I think we need to do more is investing in bringing awareness and educating children in schools about the potential of AI and data science. We have to make mathematics interesting again. And I could say with a lot of responsibility, probably Asian countries are doing a better job at that as compared to European countries, bearing some maybe countries in the Nordics. Um, and that's where the investment has to go in. I just asked myself, what purpose does it serve? It's like window dressing if you put up an AI fund for startups, that's all great. But a fund that could fund a company today is not bringing, building the future of a country. The future is in the schools. What about infrastructure? Do you have 5G? What about high-speed internet connections, connectivity? Are you doing something about it? European countries are light years behind. Countries in Asia, regions in Asia. Why? Unless we invest in that infrastructure and that basic human capital, Europe will surely miss the bus. And of course, uh, we need to do our bit all together, people who embrace AI, believe in its potential to raise awareness, but at the same time, build controls in designs and systems that prevent AI to be used for bad things. I'm completely with you and I'm glad that, uh, that you have a very concrete, I think you mentioned for me probably the most important thing is shifting the budget of education uh, towards looking at this from a, from a scientific perspective, mathematics, but as well from a creative perspective, because I think right now we have a divorce between technology, uh, creativity industries, our creativity industries, and mathematics and science. 
And then we have all the artists uh, that are doing things on their own. And then we have, of course, the science. That's probably the problem. And then, of course, we have the general population because this is still only 1% or 10%. It's the 90-10 rule. But well, I want to go, uh, and as well, because we're passing one hour, but I still want to ask you one or two more questions. Um, yeah. uh, so I think let's look at the positive stuff. So you guys have been working in a lot of uh, major life sciences and you touched some of these areas. Um, can you tell us some case studies on bio, life science, and healthcare? Um, that you're working on, or at least something, of course, that is public and some patterns? I mean, I can talk about three things. The first one is a COVID-19 program that we have wherein on our AI platform, in the shortest possible time, we were able to simulate and create completely new molecules, which have been synthesized and are in the process of uh, preclinical uh, studies. Um, we believe uh, the molecules that we have created or chosen from millions of possible structures uh, would be efficacious, not just to the current strains of uh, SARS-CoV-2, but also future uh, strains. So that's one. And uh, one of the governments in Germany is a partner in that program that we have. Um, and it, It's just unheard of. Typically, you know, this process takes years, if not months. And we were able to ramp this up in a period of weeks and get the first results and get uh, these molecules also synthesized. A second example is looking at early stage assets in pharma pipelines and, uh, and identifying for what diseases these assets are best suited for. Because typically, uh, in, in, in the pharma research process, you go with certain assumptions. and You do a portfolio analysis and you say, this asset is best suited for this disease. But once you do that, the world changes continuously. There is more evidence coming out. There, is, uh, there are different players in the competition. How can you, in close to real time, get all the evidence that's out there and identify for what disease is this asset best suited for. And proactively talk to these players and say, hey, you know, you are looking at disease A, but if you combine this asset with another asset, you might have a disruptive therapy that patients have been waiting for, for a completely different disease B. And that's what we have been doing with a number of big pharma companies talking to them. And, you know, eventually it's the patients that, that win. If you, if you get therapies out uh, that really are promising because they are the ones uh, who expect and hope uh, better healthcare outcomes for themselves. The third is this app, Curia, which has got a resounding success in Germany. Uh, As I said, it employs blockchain to identify cancer twins and answer the most fundamental questions that a cancer patient would have. We launched it end of July in Germany. Every 10 minutes, there is a download. And uh, we are together with, uh, with the support of the South Korean government are going to launch, I think in November in South Korea. And by the end of this year in Italy and Spain, and early next year also in the United States. So these are the three examples of the work that uh, we have been doing. 
Wow, congratulations. That's amazing. And I think this is as well, we need to celebrate these great things and probably take it to countries that are struggling because definitely I think uh, there's much more good things happening because otherwise we'll be all in civil war. And I think the world has less wars than ever in history of mankind. So even with 8 billion people. So I think we need to focus on that. So we talk about AI and blockchain in particular. Um, and that, of course, these applications. But when it comes to the major concepts in science and as well in society at the moment, we're looking especially the, of the concept of Society 5.0 that was drafted draft by the Japanese government as a draft, but it's still not applied much. And actually, my next book is about that, so I might come to you. Then we have Fourth Industrial Revolution of 4AR, which is mainstream. And I know that German had the Industry 4.0. There was precisely a big thing in Germany still going on, and I think it created a lot of uh, innovation, especially for manufacturing and engineering companies. And then, of course, we have all the areas of emergent technologies where blockchain and AI are part of that, but we have as well IoT and digital transformation. So you are in life science, which touches all of these and probably a lot of IoT as well in a lot of areas. So what are your views in general around the concepts of this? Your views as a whole on these principles taking society? And I think we touch a bit, but more on the more structured academic way or even uh, entrepreneurial, well, I would like to hear from you. Um, I am completely with you and some of the thoughts in this direction I think AI and blockchain, you know, what people call artificial general intelligence and technologies such as AR, VR, would drive quite a bit of digital transformation, not just in societies, but industries in general. And there would be new paradigms in industries evolving. As I said, we ourselves are working in the life science industry. Uh, You would have virtual pharmas and virtual biotechs coming up. Uh, You look at cities of today, uh, and even in European countries, in Germany, you would uh, see cities that that work together with utilities that are practically monopolies. Uh, And they are tied in contracts and agreements, which are, you know, completely disadvantageous for a public exchequer. And we are not talking about Asian countries, emerging countries. We are talking about mainstream dollar European countries. That's the level of intransparency, if not uh, corruption, uh, because you know, it depends on how you, uh, you know, intransparency is a market imperfection and you can define corruption in different ways. Being not transparent and having monopolies is also corruption. Um, so you still see, even though the level of technology adoption is high in certain countries, the structures are not letting release the value for different stakeholders. So I think there is a fundamental rethinking required. And I would look at that rethinking in order to realize a dream of uh, society 5.0 or what Germans call industry, industry fear commonul. There are three elements that one needs to look at. One is instead of window dressing, Governments should now, and I already said, start investing in the basic infrastructure. Europe is lagging behind. And if this continues for the next two years, I think there is no way Europe can catch up. Europe lost the cloud race. Uh, They announced some fancy projects. Do you think, you know, uh, companies such as Microsoft, Google, and Amazon that are adding a million cores a month there is any chance for a new, you know, greenhorn 
European cloud startup to match their prowess and purchasing power? It's impossible. But there are other things wherein Europe, Europeans should invest, can invest. Uh, Asian countries should invest. That's number one. Number two, how do you define digital? Nobody talks about that. It's all about connectivity. Let's all connect all the things, all the data, all the people. It's all about connectivity. What's the purpose of digital? As you know, I define digital as a set of technologies that make interactions between data, things, and people more meaningful. You have to define what is meaningful. Uh, and the old adage, it's better to fill in life in the years you have than to fill in years in the life you have. So instead of looking at living for 200 years, let's look at what is the subjective well-being? What is the subjective happiness? How can we fulfill the quality of life of, of our citizens? How can we add value? There is very limited thought that's, that goes into that. And three, there is, I already mentioned, a positive or a negative bias, either to the possibilities of technology or the risks of technology. In Europe, it's all about ethics with respect to AI. Uh, ethics in you know limiting technology or the possibilities of technology uh, you know and you know Kurzweil is like singularity is near people freak out in Germany and in Europe and in the other countries such as China India and in US the discourse is more about the the possibilities that technology AI and all these uh, uh, avenues of progress bring we need to balance this discourse uh, if you don't balance this discourse, it will go in one direction um, and it won't really bring any value. So summarizing, it's important that Europeans invest in infrastructure, that they don't window dress and talk about things that are superficial. B, we should define what purposeful means. Why do we want society 5.0? And instead of filling in years and lives of citizens, we have to fill in life in the years that they have. We have to look at subjective well-being, happiness. Bhutan is the only country that measures gross national happiness of its citizens. Why not European countries? What fulfills their lives? Why not look at that? And three, balancing the discourse of the possibilities of technology, looking at risks, but also what's possible. We are all still, uh, let's say yesterday or before yesterday, I was speaking with a scientist and uh, I understood that, for instance, if you look at, uh, I'm not by any mean expert in healthcare, I've been working at digital healthcare, which is different. But I think if you look, for instance, at the, the Spanish flu, which was probably the closest to what we have now, it came in the twenties as well. They killed 200 million people and partly disappeared. There was no cure, not just that it disappeared. I think you, we, we humans adapt to that. So I think the difference is that, of course, thanks God, we're not having like the 200 million people deaths, but we still have a, a big damage for the world economy that is kind of in some ways probably bigger than in the 20s because in the 20s there was the deaths, but the economy didn't paralyze. Here we have par economy paralyzed, 
but we are able to do what I'm doing with you, that is speaking with people over the world, continue doing business digital, but the rest of society is not digital. So I'd like to understand from your experience and as well uh, being a digital expert, a technology and a scientist, and as well a business person, what advice do you give to people listening to us around the world, around the the challenge with COVID-19 as an opportunity, of course, is as a challenge, but the challenge I think we know is more the opportunities and the things that we can use out of this. And like you said, I think Europe should be working hardcore to change this because I believe in Europe, but at the moment I'm not so excited. And of course, Europe got the origin to two world wars. So it has a lot of responsibility for the problems of the world. And now, of course, we are in the Asian century as well. So let's see what is going to happen. Well, I would like to hear a bit like your last thoughts on these things. I think COVID-19 is a wake-up call, but, uh, you know, all things equal, uh, I think in certain cases, politicians and policymakers are forced to, you know, take certain decisions. Even though if you look at the numbers, uh, the mortality rate, uh, rates of COVID-19 cases are, are substantially low, limited. Uh, even though you have these 6% of the cases wherein with cytokine storm, there is either an overreaction or an underreaction of the, uh, the immune system that we have. So uh, from a policy perspective, one needs to balance the economic impact that uh, these preventive measures will have, which are in some cases thought correctly that, you know, countries, especially with a demographic profile, which is more skewed towards the older population, don't want to overload their hospital system uh, with limited ICU capacities, ventilators, etc., and want to time that out, that uh, a peak doesn't strain their uh, medical resources. But at the same time, they have to look at the economic impact uh, uh, that these measures would have. Now, I think over a period in time, people have been talking about vaccines and vaccines would come, etc. Uh, it might help to look at uh, the case definitions of all these vaccines a bit closely. So you can call anything a vaccine, but what are you really trying to create immunity for? Uh, if you closely look, one gets a different perspective. There has been a lot of research on tuberculosis, HIV, and we were not able to get an effect, efficacious vaccine for these diseases. I think uh, being a pragmatist and a realist, uh, we all have to factor in this risk in our everyday lives. This is not the last pandemic. There will be many more pandemics that would come in. And digital uh, would be a way of life, but it cannot be a way of life. We human beings need uh, touch, we need hugs, we need to speak to another human beings. We are a social animal. We can't remain, we can't survive in lockdowns. The depression rates have risen up. Uh, there has been uh, domestic violence cases that have, that have been increasing and so on. So I think a more pragmatic way would be to understand the risks and uh, the risk groups protect them, but kind of factor in this risk of a pandemic in our lives and continue our lives uh, in a more balanced fashion, rather than having knee-jerk reactions. Um, and I think uh, we will converge in the middle. Uh, I don't believe it will be work from home forever. 
I don't believe, you know, there will be a lockdown forever. Pandemics will come again and again. Uh, we will use a bit more of technology, but we'll always crave for that human touch because fundamentally we are social animals. Yeah, I think it's a very inspiring way and I kind of subscribe to everything you said, but it's, it's going to be a big challenge. I want to thank you for this wonderful time. I don't know if you just want to highlight where we can find you. I think it's always good. I don't know if there's books available that you want to highlight, papers and some of your patents. Of course, we will put all the links in the interview, but it's always good to hear it from you. I'm on LinkedIn, on Amazon. I have my two books, one on AI and blockchain and how these technologies can transform uh, drug discovery inside the cockpit. And the other one on B2B branding with my dear friend, Andrea Seisengerich, who is a professor at Imperial. I'm also available on LinkedIn. Uh, my name. Fantastic. So we will highlight all of that. Actually, I didn't touch about the books, but you touched that indirectly. But it's been a fantastic journey and a great talk. So I hope everyone had the excitement and fun that I had. And I think as well, a lot of things we talk here, hopefully we can actually make it happen. And I believe that is the purpose of this uh, series as well. Thank you so much, Jungan. Uh, uh, I think I spell it correctly now. And uh, thank you so much for having us here and uh, for everyone that is listening to us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.